Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Dear Jesus, we thank you for being the tallest man in the room. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Most people uh, think that the tallest statue of Jesus Christ is uh, Christ the Redeemer in Rio. Do you remember it? The one on that kind of very steep hill where Jesus is standing there with his arms outstretched. Uh, But it's actually not true. Uh, There's a taller one in Poland, in this very small uh, city in Poland, uh, and it's called Christ the King. And it's a blazingly white statue. It's 117 uh, feet tall. It's on the top of a hill. It's, uh, it's got a gold crown, and his arms are, are stretched out. And uh, you can see it for miles and miles around. I mean, if you were 50 miles away, you could see the statue. And this monument is meant to speak to you. It's meant to give you a message, and it's meant to convince you of a deep truth a deep truth that you might find comforting or that you might want to ignore, but it's still there to speak to you. And the message is that when everything is said and done and when history is finally coming, you know, unraveled and when the world is falling apart, there's still somebody who remains the unchallenged monarch. It's Christ the King, not just in Poland, but Christ the King all over the world. I want to speak about the latter portion of today's passage. Um, Dr. Shepson preached uh, mostly about the earlier portion of the passage when he talked very powerfully about the the revelation within, that Paul, in this section in Ephesians, is now praying for people. And he's praying that they would have the core of their being enlightened in a supernatural way, that they would be able to see God as God has manifested God's own self in Christ, And that that great truth would live in us and saturate us to such a degree that we would be empowered, deeply empowered uh, to serve uh, people in love. Uh, That love really can't exist without prior revelation. We need a revelation in order to really love each other. That's what he talked about. And at the end of our passage uh, today, uh, that is verses 19 through 22, Paul links that power that he hopes that we experience Um, with the power source. And the power source for Paul is the ascended Jesus Christ, the King of Kings who reigns in glory. And uh, really, this is is what I want to speak about today. I want to speak about the tall Christ, the tall Christ. And that really is the goal of preaching, by the way. The goal of preaching is for me or anybody else in this pulpit to herald Jesus Christ as the tallest man in the room so that you can take your eyes off yourself and you can look at somebody else who's here to help you and help you definitively and permanently. So we're going to look at the tall Christ today, um, because that's what Paul focuses on in this latter part of his prayer. And I want to talk about the growth of Christ and the height of Christ, the growth of Christ and the height of Christ. Uh, I like the turn of phrase growth of Christ because Jesus of Nazareth did in fact experience an amazing growth spurt very late in his career, um, a, a moment of swift development. And, uh, and some of you know that, that in your own miniaturized experience, right, that you, you know, when you were 11, all of a sudden grew 
you know, six inches or, uh, or when, you were, um, when you went through a great crisis. And it gave you some sort of insight that you wouldn't have had without it. And you grew tremendously in that crucible of your own experience. Well, that's what happens uh, to Jesus Christ. And this is in verse 19. I really would love for you to take up your bulletin and follow along with me. Incidentally, I would love for you to bring your Bibles to church. Just as a segue, I think it's really good. Like, uh, bring, your, uh, bring your Bibles to church, and that way you can follow along in, in the real book, not just the snippet that I give you in the bulletin. But here it is in the bulletin, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So he's talking about power toward you, a demonstration of God's power toward you. Uh, and, then, and then he gives sort of the, the, the power source. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he's talking about us as beneficiaries, that we have been subjected to a great power that's come to us from the outside. And uh, this power that marches towards us, that is shot towards us, um, has, um, has two historical demonstrations, two historical demonstrations that were supernaturalist events that really did twist history in a very new and fresh and terrifying way. And the two supernaturalist uh, uh, events, the, the, the two... Um, uh, demonstrations of God's power were the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he says when he raised him from the dead and the ascension of Jesus when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So just as a reminder, now some of you know this, but others don't know it to the degree that they think they do. And some people, this information will be a little fresh. So forgive me for digging through it, but just for a sec, uh, the resurrection of Jesus um, is not a mirage that we do not believe that the resurrection of Jesus means that, that his conceptions and his ideas and his, uh, his loving qualities were raised in the immaterial souls of his disciples so that they had an extra hunch that they wouldn't have otherwise. That's what liberal Protestantism has taught um, in the 18th century in Germany, but it's not true. It's not true. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that all those things will, in fact, have a subjective effect in you, but it's only because there was a historical incident in which the very, very dead Jesus of Nazareth was given life from beyond himself, from the great father. So he gets this miraculous um, experience in which he is not only resuscitated. Now, there were other resuscitations in the New Testament where a somebody who was dead, like Lazarus, lived again, right? Jesus raises people from the dead. But those people are slated to die just on another day. Jesus raises up in such a way that he's not resuscitated, he's resurrected, which means now he is invincible and invincible forever. He'll never die. The New Testament also calls this glorification. That is when you are in a permanent state of endless renewal and, uh, and, and health and vibrancy. Uh, and what's fascinating about uh, this idea of Jesus' resurrection is not that it wasn't expected within Judaism, because it was. Uh, many, many Jews believed that there would be a resurrection of the dead in which you would lie, rise to life immortal and you would be invincible. But what most people thought is that it would happen at the end of history. They thought after everybody was dead and gone, God would have favor on some people and raise them up immortally. Nobody expected that there would be a resurrection, not a resuscitation, but a resurrection smack dab in the middle of history to start the whole thing going. That was a new idea, a new conception. And so that's what we believe happened to Jesus, that Jesus was the great apocalypse. Jesus was the apocalypse in the middle of history, and he rose up to permanent strength. 
But the story didn't end there. It isn't like he rose from the dead and then walked around and took a vacation to Turkey or maybe Malta. I hear Malta is very nice in the spring, but he didn't do that. Instead, uh, 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 about a month and a half after his resurrection miracle, um, he was um, he was taken away. That his same risen physical geographical uh, body, right, the one that was GPS locatable, was seized up, seized up by the eternal realms, by the undying lands, by the power center of the universe, by the unchallenged domain of God's authority, which we call heaven. But he was taken up into that throne room kingdom. Uh, and that is really what Paul is emphasizing here in the passage. Yes, the resurrection, but ultimately the ascension of Christ. And the ascension of Christ is when Jesus of Nazareth had his growth spurt. This is his growth spurt. The ascension is when the Jesus of history became the cosmic eternal Christ. The Jesus of history. Remember, before the ascension, what was Jesus? Jesus was a Mediterranean uh, peasant day laborer who spoke Aramaic uh, and who wore flip-flops and who ate sardines and who taught big audiences and who uh, healed people from very, very vicious ailments and who prayed alone in the dark and who had a, a cadre of apprentices who uh, understood things about one-third of the time. And, uh, and uh, you know, he was a man who was deeply, deeply affected by the cruelties of the world. And eventually uh, he was uh, degraded and uh, destroyed. Uh, by the uh, executionary powers of mankind, and then several days later resumed his life within a graveyard. Um, that was Jesus before the ascension. But after the ascension, after the ascension, um, things got a lot bigger. And Jesus knew that, by the way. Jesus predicted that there would be a time when his one three-year ministry would have a universalizing effect upon the whole world. He, he talked about it with some frequency. In fact, um, he predicted this future power shift at, at right before his ascension. In Matthew 28, which is one of the five, and yes, there are five great commissions. It just depends on the gospel that you're reading. Um, in Matthew 28, before he sends out his disciples, before he's ascended, he says that all authority, now that he's about to ascend, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, he had never said that quite that way before that moment, but that was his moment because he was about to ascend to the right hand of power. And he also said something very similar, uh, though in a darker context at his trial before the Sanhedrin, before the, the Jewish lawyers in the court. Uh, he said to them, when they asked him if he was the Christ, he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of glory. He's expecting a great promotion, in other words in which he will sit in the noblest of seats. Uh, and so on earth, on earth, Jesus was enthroned on the cross. At the ascension, Jesus is enthroned in the power center that we call heaven. On earth, Jesus was subject to the ruling authorities. At the ascension, Jesus becomes the ruling authority. Uh, and, uh, and Paul says as much because he's informed him about Jesus' new chair. We read about it, right? That he is seated at the right hand in heavenly places. Now, that's a very ancient way that was very familiar back then of speaking about power. So the king was always in the throne and the vice regent was always to his right. This is why the disciples are always clamoring uh, and, and, and um, annoying Jesus with their, uh, their incessant neediness, saying, like, can we please, like, when you get your marble house, 
when you live in your mansion, can we sit to the right and to the left? We really, we like, we prefer that, you know. They're humble. They're humble. Um, and, uh, you know, they're learning. They're learning. That's how you learn, by the way. You say stupid stuff, and then you get corrected. All right? That's just how it, that's how it flies. Um, but, but what Jesus is saying, and uh, when he's in the trial, and what Paul is saying here, when he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand in heavenly places, he is saying that Jesus is the great vice regent of heaven, that nothing of power occurs without that man sitting in that chair. He sits in the place of highest, loftiest authority. And so the ascension is this moment when Jesus grew up, if you will, when the one-time peasant became the king of unlimited consequence, the one about whom the New Testament writes, well, that he's the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, that the ascension was his unveiling as the great monarch, his coronation as the king of the universe. Um, so that's the, the growth of Christ when God raised him from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now let's talk about the height of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is sitting in this place? Well, Paul writes, and this is in verse 21, that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You notice the repeated word, all, that he has authority over all, not most, not some, not almost everyone or almost everything, but over all. So let me just mention a few things about his power. We see here towering power, not just above, but far above all authority. And I want you to think just for a moment about the authorities that have shaped our world. I mean, massive, massive superstructures that have a great deal of authority over every moment of our lives and every moment of our distant relatives' lives. I mean, when you think, think about the Ottoman Empire, right, or Red China, or... Uh, or, or England, back when it was fancier, right? The, you know, the, the, the English Empire, right? Um, or the Aztecs, or, or let's think about the, the influence of capitalism or of communism, but these massive, massive empires and movements which have shaped language. I mean, the reason that you speak the way that you do is because of Elizabeth I. I mean, it's really true. It's really true how Eng the English language developed and became even further sophisticated during her reign and because of the effects of the King James Bible and Shakespeare. You're all beneficiaries of that great yet mixed legacy. Right? Uh, that those things have empiric uh, qualities and effects. But let's talk more in a more localized way about your own personal authorities that have uh, totally shaped you, whether you love it or hate it. Um, the friends that you wish to emulate and the competitors that always seem to uh, edge you out or the uh, professors who uh, inspire and yet intimidate you or the, um, the president that you love to hate or hate to love, uh, the, uh, uh, the addiction that has you by the throat that you're terribly ashamed of. And truth be told, you acted out last night, but you're still here today. And by the way, good for you. Good for you. 
Um, but these very dominant forces in your life that have steered you in a variety of directions because you know as well as I know that it isn't so much that we live but are lived. We are, we are lived by all sorts of psychodynamic forces that we barely understand. Luther called this the bondage of the will. It's just obviously true that we are in over our heads most of the time and driven by all sorts of towering powers. Well, the good news of the New Testament is that those things are above us but they're not far above us. Somebody else is far above us and above those things, that they ultimately don't have the height in the room. There's a taller man in the room. And that's what St. Paul is saying, that no power that's ever been constructed or imagined or will be constructed or imagined can ever hold a candle to the Christ who has authority over heavens and the earth for all time. So he talks about towering power, and he also talks about everlasting power, power that exists in this age and in the age to come. Uh, that is, all the past conceptions and ideas and governments and empires and all the unforeseen future ones. Uh, they'll never be able to topple the person of Christ, that everything but Christ is vapor. Everything but Christ is vapor. Uh, so one time I was uh, in England doing uh, cathedral tours because evidently that's what snobby Anglicans do with their free time. Uh, well, there were pubs too, but between the pubs there were cathedrals. <laughs> and um, one of the cathedrals was the Peterborough Cathedral, which is um, uh, architecturally kind of a hodgepodge, but it's beautiful. But in the very center of it, and it was very moving uh, on that particular day because they were doing repairs on the inside of the cathedral, so scaffolding everywhere, dust everywhere, uh, but in the center of it was a very garish red crucifix above the communion table. And on the crucifix, written in Latin, though I don't remember the Latin, there were gilded letters that said, the cross stands still while the rest of the world turns. Isn't that good? So everything is chaos. Even in the cathedral, everything's chaos. But that's not chaos. So Christ is the great timeless one. He is the one who is, uh, who is everlastingly secure. He is the only rock of Gibraltar that's stronger than the rock of Gibraltar. And so there's everlasting power. And lastly, we see the kind of the anatomy of power. Paul uses physicalized language here. He talks about feet and, and a head, right? This massive, massive feet and this massive dome, right? meaning the whole person from feet to, feet to head. So all things, Paul writes, are under his feet. All things are under his feet. Now, uh, it's when ancient people talked about bowing down to somebody's feet, that meant total submission, total submission. So that means that nothing ultimately escapes justice. Now, we think in our own little confined worlds that everybody gets away with most things, right? That, uh, that ultimately justice doesn't prevail. And Paul has this daring conception, which is, uh, which is in agreement with the rest of the Bible, that nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. And that ought to scare the heck out of you. It scares me. But, but nobody gets away with anything. Um, everything is eventually dealt with. And, uh, and, and so everything is under his feet. Everything submits ultimately and says over to you, to Christ. And, and he also says that Christ is head over all things. Now, when, when somebody in the ancient world spoke about somebody's head, that was a way of uh, um, speaking symbolically about their authority. This is why Christ is displayed by St. Paul as the head of the church or the authority of the church, the leader of the church. And, and similarly, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ has everybody bowed his feet and has the authority over everything. And note, there's a goal or an aim for Jesus's power here. This is verse 22. Please read it. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, to the church. Some translations say for the church, 
What does this mean? Something akin to, to the benefit of, or for the benefit of the church. So Christ has mastery, control, kingly sovereignty over everything for the well-being of one particular thing. Now, if I was to bet all my blue chips on something, right, in my flesh, in my humanity, I'm not sure it would be the church, right? Like, let's just say we have a mixed record. Like, it's not been awesome sauce most of the time. But, but for whatever reason, and a reason that has only to do with love, and a love that I can't understand because I'm not old enough yet, this is his quest to put all things under his authority for the well-being of one sacred gathering, one assembly, and it's you. It's all of us. I can't imagine such a thing. I'm just glad that he can, right? That he exists, that his sovereign power exists, not to make a nation great, but to make the church effective. And then he has this summary statement when he talks about the height of Christ. He says that this Christ fills all in all. What on earth does that mean? It's poetic, but what does it mean? Well, it means something akin to God's omnipresence, that, he, that God in God's own nature is unlimited and saturating. That, that there's nowhere you can go to escape the benevolence. There's nowhere you can go to escape the righteousness. There's nowhere you can hide that heaven won't see. It's why we begin with that very annoyingly invasive prayer in our service, Unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. He just, he's there. David says this in the psalm. You might remember Psalm 139. Where shall I hide from your presence? Where am I going to go? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. And if I make my bed among the dead, you're there too. Well, notice how that same language about God the Father is now being applied to the carpenter prince. That he the one who is caring incarnate, is the omnipresent Lord. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. And nothing, nothing will escape his gracious lordship or his eventual influence because he fills all in all. That's the height of Christ, fills all in all. Um, This is why uh, I've said this before, and some people are scandalized by the language, but I think it's good metaphorical language. Luther said that that Jesus Christ is, is the big fat God. That's what he said, because Jesus takes up a lot of space. Or as I put it, he's the tallest man in the room. I think my metaphor is tidier than Luther's, but you know, I don't know. That's what I think. Anyway, yeah. So that's the growth of Christ, and that's the height of Christ. And so for Paul, you know, Jesus isn't just an option. He's not just an appendage. He's not just an afterthought. He's not just interesting. He's not fascinating. He's not, like, worth debating. He's not, like one aspect of the divine, whatever that means, uh, like, he's it. Like, he's the sovereign. He's the sovereign center. And Paul, like, to give this a gospel edge, Paul would say, thank God he's the sovereign center, because if I were the sovereign center, the world would dissolve. If I were the sovereign center, I wouldn't forgive anybody. I wouldn't, because I would be too hurt, and I'd act out of my hurt. But Jesus Christ is the sovereign center who doesn't abuse people. Jesus Christ is the sovereign center who lives to give it all away. So let me make two closing um, comments for all of us, and I'll call them the tall Christ and the taller you. Yeah, and then I'm done. This is something about the tall Christ as it relates to us. You know, one of the aspects of fallenness is that we yearn for a small Christ. 
or a smaller Christ, a reduced Christ, one with less influence, less consequence, less invasiveness, less impact. Because the real Jesus is just too invasive, too deconstructive, and too gracious, frankly, for our tastes. Uh, there's this film from the late eight, uh, 1980s with uh, Rick Moranis called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And he's saying, it's not very good. But, um, but, the, but the father accidentally blasts his family with a ray gun and shrinks them to be like a centimeter in height. You know, I think that's what we want to do with Jesus. I, I, think he's unco- I think he makes us terribly uncomfortable. You know, and people do this all the time. I think, remember the Beatles in the 19, uh, late 60s, they wanted a shrunken Jesus. They said that they wanted to be more famous than Jesus, put him in his place. Social media loves a shrunken Jesus because they want to be the sovereign influencer of how you feel and how you think and what you buy. Totalitarians, they really prefer a shrunken Jesus. They ache to dominate every aspect of your mind and body and daily rhythms, and they don't like competitors. Uh, activists love a shrunken Jesus. They want a Jesus who always supports their cause and never contradicts the energy of the movement. Rebel slackers who hate their parents love a shrunken Jesus because they think a tall, all-seeing Jesus um, stirs up all unseemly regret within them about deeds they've done in the dark. But you know what? The type A successful, driven maniacs, the titans, they love a shrunken Jesus they, because they think life is about self-determination and effort and there is no place in their mental framework for a Christ who loves the ineffectual. Uh, preachers love a shrunken Jesus. That's why most sermons have no Christ focus at all. None. Um, most sermons that I hear are just endless exhortations telling you what to do, challenging you today to do this or that, but giving you nothing but law and no gospel. No enabling word that would actually compel you out of love to do the right thing. Gospelless challenges. Where Christ is very small, but you are very big. But to tell you the truth, I want a shrunken Jesus. Because there's a part of me that I want to keep all my dark rubies to myself. All my prized resentments and inner hostilities and passive aggressive tendencies. Because they help me to feel superior and secure and safe. But don't we all? All of us in our flesh desire a sunken Christ because sin itself is the delusion that we can shrink God and exalt ourselves. And yet he loves us too much to keep us in that place. And he reminds us in this passage that he will always tower. Christ always towers. He's resolutely gigantic. Jesus never develops osteoporosis. He never shrinks down. Instead, everything and everyone else, from the Beatles to bullies to terrorists, to our own bodies, will bend the knee. It's just a matter of time. Jesus Christ in his ascended state, friends, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be the tallest man in the room. Better to cope with it now and just sort of slowly accept that that's fact. Something about the tall Christ, now the taller you. Because in Paul's entire prayer, he wants us to have a revelation of power. He wants us to know power, but power from a credible source, power that can compel us to to function differently out of love. Uh, And he wants us to know that this tall Christ has come into the world not to make you feel small and stupid, but has come to give you a sense of credibility and a sense of gifted legitimacy 
and a sense of strength and a sense of endurance and because he's loved you as you are. Um, the tall Christ has come to lift us up, to plug us in. This is why Paul says later in Ephesians 2, he is, God has seated us, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus isn't alone there. He has friends. That's good. Uh, that we're seated with him in that lofty place. We belong in the heights. We join the champion king. We dwell there. Our truest zip code isn't 16127. And it never will be. Uh, that we belong there. And you know, the world doesn't really do that. It doesn't lift you up. Like the darker part of the world, the sin-soaked part of the world exists to make you feel small and insecure and immaterial and inconsequential. That it's all dust in the wind. You know? So I have this friend. She's very wealthy. and She owns a vacation home in the mountains of Scotland. And uh, she's divorced. Her husband was a very um, abusive alcoholic who left her and her two children. Um, she's divorced. She's now an empty nester. And she was very lonely. She gets very lonely around holidays because she can't make any more family memories. Like, yeah, they're all done. And... Uh, and she didn't want to spend Christmas alone in Scotland. And so she invited, like, to pay, pay for three of her friends to join her there. And so she flew them out, and they had a great Christmas Eve and a marvelous Christmas morning. But later, um, after the festivities died down, my friend uh, said, look, I'm going to go take a nap, but I'll, I'll wake up, and then I'll, I'll cook us dinner. Um, and she eventually woke up a little early to the like quiet sounds of her friends that were talking about her. And, and they were commenting about how dirty the house was and how it looked like it hadn't been dusted in a long time and how the food at Christmas Eve wasn't very good and how they didn't like that it rained all the time. I mean, it's Scotland, but they didn't like how it rained. And they also said um, these words. They said, well... It's pretty tragic that she would have to invite us out here. After all, as friends go, she's pretty much low-hanging fruit. Well, they eventually left to fly home, and the house was empty again. She stayed by herself for a few days, and she said, I was just like sitting at the bottom of the Christmas tree, kind of crying, like in cleaning up all the dead branches and the needles and, uh, and thinking about that and thinking about how low I felt and small and insignificant and stupid and used and all of those things. And then she, she felt like she got this energy from the Holy Spirit, like this dynamic that came in and, and addressed her and said to her something to this effect. You think of yourself like these dead branches on the floor, but look up because I see you as I see that star on the top of the tree. I think you're dazzling. I think you're dazzling. Well, her body was like flooded, she said, with dignity, with like a, a luminous sense of God. And, and that's what I want you to have here. That's what I want you to have at this place. I don't want you to feel small. I don't want you to feel immaterial. I want you to know the tall Christ who lifts us up, the tallest man in the world, who is the epicenter of goodness, who is the one who doesn't come to harm you or denigrate you, but to love you into life to lift you up. So whatever towering forces you're facing into today, Christ is taller still. Whether it's a disease or an abuser or bulimia or uncontrollable anger or being stuck in like a shame cul-de-sac, 
uh, whatever it is, uh, whatever it is, you know that there is someone who is everlastingly taller than your circumstances. The tallest man in the world would want you to know that you have never, never, not for a moment, been unloved or alone all your life. That he has raised you up with invincible compassion and deathless grace. And you don't have to worry so much. You really don't. You don't have to worry so much about failing or sin or being exposed or even dying. Because after all, you belong to the tallest man in the room. And he's got the whole world in his hands. We at last, they took your 